ending nice and tidy it's a rule i learned in school get your money every friday happy endings are the rule so divide up those in darkness from the ones who walk in light light them up boys there's your picture drop the This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Today, we look back at the life of Toni Morrison. Uh, Toni Morrison is one of my literary saints, and I think we might say that she is the greatest writer of the 20th century, although people like to argue Measure, as Virginia Woolf used to say, the measuring rod up their sleeve. Uh, for me, uh, it is essential that we say, say carefully uh, that if there is any poetic justice in our country's history, it is the fact that Toni Morrison is today our greatest novelist, uh, I put her on the shelf with James Baldwin and the others. I I have, uh, oh, files and files. I've been going over them. There's a wonderful article in Newsweek in 1981. I've marked it up. I may have time to get to it. But today, I think, I think that the best thing to do for this African-American uh, genius is to go and look at her Nobel Prize uh, lecture. You know, she gets to go to Stockholm and give it a speech. I heard her in an interview talking about uh, what she would wear. Uh, 1993, when she won the Nobel Prize for literature, uh, specifically for her novel, Beloved. Her first novel, The Bluest Eye, appeared in, uh, in 1970. And in between, there were novels and novels. Uh, let's see, I want, to, I want to spend most of my time today on this speech given uh, in Stockholm. It seems to me Yes, it's a metaphor that I I had several times I've had friends say they didn't quite understand it. It's a metaphor about a bird, about uh, whether or not the bird in the in the uh, speech here, bird is in her hand and whether it is living or dead. That is her question, and uh, I know that feeling I've picked up little bird, even a pet bird, and you feel for the heart to see if the little thing is living or dead. And 
she writes in her speech about whether or not this bird, this little bird, is living or dead, uh, the bird of language. Does it have a future? Anyway, let me go to the excerpts I made from the Nobel lecture in 1993. Uh, mm, Once upon a time, there was an old woman, blind, wise. In the version I know, the woman is the daughter of slaves, black American, and lives alone in a small house outside of town. One day, the woman is visited by some young people who seem to be bent on showing her up for the fraud they believe she is, they stand before her. One of them says, Old woman, I hold in my hand a bird. Tell me whether it is living or dead. She doesn't answer. She's blind, cannot see her visitors, let alone what is in their hands. She does not know their color, gender, or homeland. She only knows their motive. The old woman's silence is so long, the young people have trouble holding their laughter. Finally, she speaks. I don't know, she says. I don't know whether the bird you are holding is dead or alive. But what I do know is that it is in your hands. It is in your hands. Toni Morrison goes on, I choose to read the bird as language and the woman as a practiced writer. She is worried about how the language she dreams in, given to her at birth, is handled. She believes that if the bird in the hands of her visitors is dead, the custodians are responsible for the corpse. In her country, children have bitten their tongues off and used bullets instead to iterate the voice of speechlessness, of disabled language of language that adults have abandoned altogether as a device for grappling with meaning or for expressing love. (laughs) She knows tongue suicide is not only the choice of children, it is common among the infantile heads of state and power merchants uh, who speak Speak only in order to force, force obedience. Oppressive language does more than represent violence. It is violence. Whether it is the full language of law without ethics or language designed for the estrangement of minorities, hiding its racist plunder, in its literary cheek. It must be rejected, altered, exposed. Oppressive language drinks blood, laps 
vulnerabilities, tucks its fascist boots under the crinolines of respectability and uh, <laughs> patriotism as it moves relentlessly toward the bottom line and the bottomed out mind. I repeat, yes, as it moves relentlessly toward the bottom line and the bottomed out mind. Sexist language, racist language, theistic language, all are typical of the policing languages of mastery. They cannot, do not permit new knowledge. There is and will be rousing language to keep citizens armed and arming, slaughtered and slaughtering in the malls, courthouses, post offices, playgrounds, bedrooms and boulevards. There will be more diplomatic language to countenance rape, torture, assassination. There is and will be more seductive mutant language designed to throttle women to pack their throats like pate-producing geese with their own unsayable, transgressive words. Underneath the eloquence, the glamour, the scholarly associations, however seductive, the heart of such language is languishing, or perhaps not breathing at all. If the bird is already dead, the old woman would not want to leave her young visitors with the impression that language should be forced to stay alive merely to be. Language can never live up to life once and for all, nor should it. Language can never pin down slavery, genocide, war. Nor should it yearn for the arrogance to be able to do so. Word work is sublime, she thinks, because it is generative. We die. That may be the meaning of life, but we do language. That may be the measure of our lives. Is there no speech, the children asked the old woman, no words you can give to help us break through your dossier of failures? through the education you have just given us that is no education at all, because we are paying close attention to what you have done as well as to what you have said, to the barrier you have erected between generosity and wisdom. 
We have no bird in our hands, living or dead. Why didn't you reach out to delay the soundbite, the lesson, until you knew who we were? Did you so despise our trick, our modus operandi, you could not see that we were baffled about how to get your attention? We are young, unripe. We have heard all our short lives that we have to be responsible. What could that possibly mean in the catastrophe this world has become? Our inheritance is an affront. You want us to see only cruelty and mediocrity. How dare you talk to us of duty when we stand waist-deep in the toxin of your past? You trivialize us and trivialize the bird that is not in our hands. Is there context for our lives? Is there no song, no literature, no poem full of vitamins? No history connected to experience that you can pass along to help us start strong? You are the old one, the wise one. Stop thinking about saving your face. Think of our lives. Tell us your particularized world. Make up a story. We will not blame you if your reach exceeds your grasp. If love so ignites your words, they go down in flames. We know you can never do it properly once and for all. Passion is never enough. Neither is skill, but try. For our sake and yours, forget your name in the street. Tell us what the world has been to you in the dark places and in the light. Don't tell us what to believe, what to fear. You old woman, blessed with blindness, you can speak the language that tells us what only language can. How to see Without pictures, language alone is meditation. Tell us what it is to be a woman so that we may know what it is to be a man. What moves in the margin, what it is to have no home on this place what it is to live at the edge of towns that cannot bear your company. Tell us about a wagon load of slaves, how they sang so softly, 
their breath was indistinguishable from the following snow. They sang so softly, softly, their breath was indistinguishable from the falling snow. Tell us about a wagon load of slaves, how they knew from the hunch of the nearest shoulder that the next stop would be their last. It is quiet again when the children finish speaking until the old woman breaks into the silence. Finally, she says, I trust you now. I trust you with the bird that is not in your hands because you have truly caught it. Look, look how lovely it is, this thing we have done together. There's a lot more to the speech. I'm sure it's out there online somewhere. Uh, I uh, have it here in front of me, uh, these excerpts. I put them in uh, news and notes, uh, a little newspaper newsletter that the women's bookstore put out back in the day. Alice Malloy at the women's bookstore was the editor of News and Notes. God bless her. Uh, she, she, um, she always just published anything I handed her. I love it. It's just amazing how strong you can be when you have an editor that simply lets you do what an editor should do. <laughs> I'm flapping through my my uh, essays here. I was thinking. I have no no funereal remarks. I, I don't do that. I think that we know that when a great writer dies, it simply means that now she speaks through her works. Edna Millay writes here, she writes, Read me, read me, do not let me die. So it is we read, we read. Uh, I remember the first time I looked into Beloved, how overwhelmed I was. <laughs> I remember my reductionist nonsense talking to students. I said, this is a book about bad parenting, kind of like King Lear. King Lear about the failure of a father. Here in Beloved, you see the broken heart of a mother shattered. I, I've never read anything like it. I, I think that the minute we say motherhood, uh, literature comes up wanting. Now, now we know what it means to be the mother to children who may have to live as slaves. I know we're never allowed to mention Harriet Beecher Stowe in the same breath with Toni Morrison, but it's okay, it's okay. Uh, 
in Uncle Tom's Cabin, the opening scenes have a slave mother putting her babe over the side, letting it drown. When I first read it as a little teenager, I was too shocked. I just I couldn't understand it. Couldn't even think about it. Uh, always, always it has been out there. History's greatest crime. People like to argue over the worst crime in history, naming the Holocaust and this and that. But the Holocaust, after all, was a matter of decades. Uh, slavery is centuries. So many centuries. It's, it's what was it? Someone said, yes, it's like, it's like unwrapping a, a mummy, the yards and yards of bandages to unwrap this, this horrible thing. Uh, I wanted to just jump in and read you a little bit of uh, an essay I wrote about James Baldwin. I, I thought of it late, late, late at night when I was searching for Toni Morrison's, well, for her place on my shelf I don't know why I I place her right next to James Baldwin. She wrote, uh, she wrote in uh, her funeral oration for James Baldwin. That is Toni Morrison wrote. She spoke of his love, his gentleness. Uh, she was there at the funeral with all his friends and. She she thought about James and she said to herself, thinking of his his uh, his love, his expression, uh, his feeling. She said it is like like the first turning in the womb. I've thought about that ever since the the moment when a mother first feels the the child within her, and what that means. The first turning in the womb, that's what she identifies, yes, the love of James Baldwin. Uh, I don't know why I see these two as the great lovers, the two great lovers of the late 20th century. Entirely different, these writers, these two. And yet I, I place them next to each other, not just because they're African-American, but because, as I say, their depth of feeling weighs with me, uh, I guess. Again, I don't like measuring. I guess it's the 20th century for me. Uh, now, James, James Baldwin, Died in 1987. He was rather young, well, in his 60s. Uh, he was born, let's see, a little bit before Tony. Tony Morrison was born in uh, 1931. James in 1924. I have a little note here. Me, me, me in 1933, yes. 
All of us came came in a bunch. Ah, uh, oh, James Baldwin died in Paris on the first day of December in 1987. He was born in Harlem in 1924. Now, he, Baldwin, is the link between Richard Wright and the black women writers today. These are the writers who go to the heart of things. When I was young, I imagined that black writers were better Christians than white writers. <laughs> of course, when I was young, they were. Times change. <laughs> I can't help it. I, I want to go on with this essay because <laughs> it, it, it refers to one of my favorite critics, Stanley Crouch. I always called him Stanley Crouch. Uh, a magnificent music critic, but his literary opinions I had trouble with. Uh, this article goes on to say the times change. There's a vitriolic view of black writers and their literary legacy uh, from time to time, particularly in an article written by Stanley Crouch back in October 1987. It's an issue of the New Republic, October 19, 1987. Stanley Crouch writes, Much of the Afro-American fiction written over the last 25 years derives from a vision set down by James Baldwin, who described the downtrodden as saintly. That's a quote. Yes. <laughs> yeah, a vision set down by James Baldwin, who described the downtrodden as saintly. Crouch goes on to state that as a result of James Baldwin's writing, race became an industry. That's a quote. Race became an industry. There's an article titled, Aunt Medea. It's a frontal attack on Toni Morrison's novel, Beloved. It's also an assault on black women writers in general. I had so much fun with this essay here on KPFA. Uh, other writers in the Black Scholar. Uh, it's the damnedest thing. Uh, as I read Stanley Crouch's article, I found myself scribbling in the margin the observation that for black women writers, the leap from being ignored to being hated seems to spell success. <laughs> Footnote here. See, Oprah Winfrey, uh, she helped promote the bluest eye. Sales went through the roof. Uh, she made the movie of Beloved. It was not successful, but uh, obviously she gave it a shot. Anyway, the attacks uh, on Alice Walker have been the most petulant uh, among particularly uh, male writers. But Stanley Crouch's article on Tony Morrison is a veritable temper tantrum. He stamps his feet like some tranky rump, cranky rumple still skin. <laughs> I still keep thinking of Virginia Woolf with all her professors. And, uh, anyway, like a 
Rumpelstiltskin because a woman has spun gold from straw and he's jealous. Crouch writes, Beloved, the novel which won Toni Morrison her Nobel Prize, is designed to placate sentimental feminist ideology. <laughs> wow. I gotta do, I gotta do more of this uh, essay. I'm gonna do it soon. Put it on these airwaves. The blessed Saint Toni Morrison has died and left us with her work. This has been Jennifer Stone. Till next time, go easy, and if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. In the next 70 years, 70 years, the world will be struggling to save itself. Like a sci-fi movie, the people of Earth will find a way to survive, to overcome climate denial, barriers of inequality, and create new economic and environmental policies to rejuvenate a dying planet. In the next 70 years, your fiercely independent radio station will be here to cover it for you. 94.1 FM, KPFA. You're listening to 94.1 KPFA, 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, 97.5 K24-8BR in Santa Cruz, and online worldwide at kpfa.org.